0: Today from the Bible we're going to be talking about and learning about perseverance. What is perseverance? I think everyone understands what perseverance is. If they stop to think about it, it means persevering. (laughs) We persevere when we do something hard because it's worth it. Because we have the end in sight. So we think about sports, you're going to train, you're going to do the hard work, you're going to persevere, you're not going to quit because you want to finish. You want the glory that's at the end, the the victory that's at the end, the self of accomplishment that's at the end. Sometimes it's a hard class, you're taking a hard class, you're doing the work, you're persevering even though you're not enjoying it because you want a passing grade or a good grade or you want to be able to graduate or something like that. Uh, maybe a hard relationship, you want to stick it out because you think it's right to do that, so you're going to persevere through the hardships. A job, a boss, it's all about doing what is hard, even though you feel like quitting, you know that it's better to keep going because of something, because of a greater cause, because of a greater reward. You're not going to quit mid-race, you're going to go to the very end, even though it might be painful, even though it might be hurt, uh, hurtful. Because it's going to be worth it in the end. We're going to persevere, keep going, keep running, in boxing, keep punching. We all understand perseverance. We might not enjoy perseverance, but we get the idea. It inspires us too to watch movies about perseverance and to read stories about perseverance. And you, you think that, that's, that's great, that's awesome, that's inspiring to me to do hard things as well. Well, today we're going to talk about perseverance in the Christian life. And it's an important issue because the Christian life is hard sometimes. Some of you need to be reminded to keep looking to Christ. Keep persevering in that sense. Don't stop trusting in Christ no matter what. No matter if your children don't want to talk to you anymore because you are trusting in Christ above all else. Or if your parents, let's reverse it, don't want to talk to you anymore because you're going to keep trusting in Christ no matter what, because he's the only perfect, sufficient savior or coworkers or friends or former church members or whatever it might be. Sometimes it's hard to be a Christian and sometimes it's harder to be a Christian than at other times. In the first century, it surely was hard, especially for Jewish people, to be Christians. History tells us that sometimes they would have a funeral for you even though you hadn't died yet. And you would be socially ostracized, maybe maybe your job as well, certainly your family. It would have been hard to keep trusting in Christ. Well, seasons come and seasons go, but I think right now, where we're living, given all kinds of pressures, social pressures, cultural pressures, all kinds of pressures, it's harder and harder lately to be a Christian. And I want to remind you to keep looking to Christ, that it is worth looking to Christ and only looking to Christ as your Savior. Maybe one more work of preparation here, and it would be to address those of you who are younger those of you who are children those of you who are young adults still under your parents home uh this is a great passage for you because in a lot of ways uh, you've been under the umbrella of your your parents faith if you will now maybe you're trusting in Christ and I'm thankful for that but but there's been some shelter and so when you move out from under that umbrella so to speak it, you're going to have to own it or not will your parents faith if you will become your faith Or will you, because it's hard, stop looking to Christ? Well, Hebrews 10 is a great chapter of the Bible for you. But it's also a great chapter of the Bible for those who are not under the umbrella of their parents' faith. It's great for all of us as we face the pressure, as we face the difficulty of whether or not we should keep trusting in Christ. Hebrews 10 is is extraordinary. It's wonderful. And so what we'll do is look at this chapter today so that we might learn something about perseverance. And it can be easily divided into two sections. The first 18 verses of Hebrews 10, uh, let, let's make it real simple. First 18 verses, perfect atonement. Perfect atonement. Jesus is trustworthy. Perfect atonement. And then verses 19 to 39, perseverance. Perseverance. Perfect atonement, first half. Perseverance, the second half. And the logic is clear. Because Jesus is the perfect Savior who makes perfect atonement and no one else does, persevere. Keep looking to Jesus. No matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, keep looking to Jesus because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who provides perfect atonement. And atonement has to do with satisfying God's justice so that you can be forgiven. And so if there's no other way to be forgiven, and that's the argument of Hebrews, other than looking to Christ, perfect atonement, no matter how hard the social pressures get, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how painful, persevere. Keep trusting in Jesus. You might be thinking, why are we doing Hebrews 10 today? Well, because we did Hebrews 2 a, a few weeks ago, and so it was on my mind, the book of Hebrews. Uh, maybe it's also because I was just in the holy land that's filled with religion, all different kinds of religions, all different supposed ways to get to heaven, uh, all kinds of smells and bells and priests and all kinds of things that you can do, that you can trust in that don't deliver. All kinds of Jesus junk, I like to say when I'm in the Middle East. Some even naming the name of Jesus, but not the actual Jesus. And there are these allurements, so it's fresh in my mind. Because religion's not going to help. A different version, a pseudo version of Christianity is not going to help you. The one true living resurrected Jesus provides perfect atonement. And so look to him, and look to him, and look to him. And don't stop looking to him. The second portion of Hebrews 10, the call to perseverance is affectionate, warm, compassionate, um, parental, pastoral. But it also is pretty strong. It's also rather severe for those of you who need it to be severe. Right? A letter written to professing Christians of all different kinds. And, and some are just needing some pastoral encouragement. That might be you. Others need some strong pastoral rebuke because you're really on the fence. And that's ridiculous. And so you're going to get that kind of flavor as well. So whatever kind of encouragement you need to persevere, I trust you'll find it by the help of the Spirit of God today. Okay, let's jump right into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, For since the law, shorthand for the old covenant system of sacrifices and priests and temple, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, instead of Jesus, the true form, the the all-sufficient one, It, the old covenant system, can, notice what it says, never, never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect or complete those who draw near. Notice the contrast, the shadow. And then we have, he says, the true form. So shadows aren't bad, shadows are good, but shadows are never the end in and of themselves. They're always anticipating the reality. Sometimes we say, because of Colossians, the substance. Here he says, the true form. And so we have to keep keep in mind what he's doing here. He's addressing people who in particular are thinking about going back to the other kind of priests, to the other kind of sacrificial system, going back to the temple, going back to the shadows... When in reality, Jesus has come and he's the fulfillment. He's the real thing. He's the, as it says, the true form. And so, and that's ridiculous. That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so any kind of system, this is the true legitimate old covenant system, but there are pseudo systems that offer something like a temple, a special place to meet with God, some kind of priest, some kind of priest craft, some kind of things that they do and sacrifices. And and it doesn't make any sense, he's saying. Don't do that. It doesn't make, it's illogical. It's crazy. Plus, it says they can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the shadows are never as important as the true form. And once we have the true form, it doesn't make any sense at all to go back to the shadows. And I realize that very few of you in this room are thinking about going back to that kind of system. But you you might be thinking sometime in your life about going to to some kind of shadowy system. (laughs) Something that is, that is lesser than the true form, the ultimate one, the way to God, the mediator between, between God and man, who is the man Christ Jesus. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It doesn't solve your problems. Now he gives the sensibleness of this. He says in verse 12, otherwise, would they, the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. He's just using common sense. The fact that it has to keep being repeated shows that they're not sufficient. They're not adequate. Thus, they're continuing. The fact that they're repeated demonstrates their lack of sufficiency. Verse three says, but in these sacrifices, there is, there is a reminder of sins every year. So at least there is the reminder that you, you, you have a problem. You have a sin problem, which means you have a God problem. So there is that reminder at least. So may I say that if you're thinking about going somewhere other than to Jesus, well, you know, Even a stop clock is right twice a day. There is one thing you can learn by repetition and all the things you have to keep doing and keep doing and keep doing. You know what you should be learning? It's not working. And do you have a sin problem? In one sense, I want to even say this is true religion, Old Covenant, shadowy religion. But in a certain sense, even false religion, shadowy kind of false religion, at least serves some kind of purpose. It shows you that it's not working. (laughs) Because it's always do more, try harder. It's always some kind of thing that has to be done by someone else or you. And I want to at least use that as an illustration in your life. It shows you that you need Christ. That it's not working. Then, as if the point needs to be made more plain, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The shadows never deliver. The shadows are never the real thing, so the shadows never really do the real things. It's always in anticipation. This is where Jesus enters sta- the stage. This is where Jesus becomes so central. We we need Christ to be the. True form, we need Christ to be the substance so that he will bring perfect atonement. How about verse 5? Consequently, he's using all of these logic words. This just makes sense. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, quoting Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. So if a body had been prepared for him, he's supposed to do something in this body prepared. Then in verse 6 it says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And before we move on, we start putting the pieces together. There is a intentional design. Preparation had been made for The eternal son to become incarnate, to become one of us in this body, if you will, to do something designed by God that the shadows could never accomplish. They were always looking forward to this, looking forward to the prepared beforehand body for the incarnate one to do what must be done. I can't help but cross-reference in my mind and think, that's right, First Corinthians 15, as the last Adam, as the one of us human beings. Then verse 7, let's let's keep going. Then I said, Behold, I have come, right, to, to, to occupy this body, if you will, to become a human being, become one of us. Behold, I have come, I love this, to do. I have come to do. He came to be one of us, and he came to do something, right? As a substitute. To do what is it that he came to do? He I came to do your will, O God. He's going to do all of the right things on behalf of those who would ever trust in him. He's going to do God's will, not only that, as of the last Adam, but also as the great Savior, as it as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So pretty straightforward. A body to do so that all who trust in him don't have to do. So that we can rest. And it's not the perpetual sacrifices that don't actually ever deliver. We're going to look to the one who was given a body to do everything necessary. It's wonderful. Remember, salvation is by works. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. But it's not by your works because you are a fallen human being. And so all of your works even are unacceptable He came to do everything necessary to be the worker on our behalf so that we can rest in him. Then it says in verse 8, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So there is a divine intention for the shadows. They serve a good purpose. But do notice, they come to an end. Even in the wording that he uses here, does away with the first in order to establish the second. They were always designed to anticipate. The ultimate who is Jesus Christ the Lord, who is the ultimate temple, who is the ultimate priest, who is the ultimate prophet, who is the ultimate king. And so, whether it's this kind of shadow system or other pseudo shadow systems, doesn't make any sense for you to put your confidence in them by divine design. They're done. They're done. Just as an aside, it seems strange to me that all kinds of professing Bible-believing Christians somehow think we need to go back to the sh- shadowy system because of their view of prophecy. The book of Hebrews will ruin such views. They will ruin such views. So I'm here to meddle with your bad theology as the book of Hebrews is already meddled with mine. They're done. It's about Jesus. He's the one. Don't go somewhere else. Don't go backward. Don't go to the shadows. Are we on verse 10? Okay. How about verse 10? And by that will, the son doing the will of the father will, right? And by that will, the, the son doing the will of the father. And by that will, we, we who trust in him have been sanctified cleansed and in this context don't think there's justification and sanctification and once one is a once and for all act and the other is progressive sanctification that's good to do in theology good job if you're thinking that way but he's not using it that way here he's talking about being cleansed and being definitively cleansed once and for all because of the work of Christ that's what's happening here clearly according to context and by that will have uh, we have been sanctified Made pure, right? White as snow. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's wonderful and grand and climactic in contrast to the sacrifices, 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 sacrifices. Oh, those were shadows anticipating once for all. And so, to the tender-hearted, I want to say, please, don't look anywhere else. To the less tender-hearted, I want to say this. You would be a fool to look somewhere else. Because none of the other shadowy systems with priestcraft and all of the other things will ever deliver. Look to the one who does so once for all. It's wonderful. That's a reoccurring theme in the book of Hebrews. Verse 11 then, by way of contrast, And every priest, every priest stands daily at his service. So this isn't just day of atonement. This isn't just once a year. This, he's including other sacrifices. Every priest daily, notice, notice the double emphasis, at his service offering repeatedly, so it's every priest daily offering, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's the same It needs to be anticipating something better, something sufficient, something that's once and for all. It's it's smacking of insufficiency. How about verse 12? But when Christ had offered for all time, right? So what a contrast it is there. It's the same repeatedly, never, daily, every priest. But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins sufficient it's a single one and it it did what it needed to do he sat down more on finality he sat down at the right hand of God acceptable done exalted the best place the place of honor the place of privilege if you will because it's sufficient again keep looking to Christ and we'd be foolish not to But that's not the ending. Verse 13 says, waiting. And I'm going to inject there in light of chapter 7, verse 25, where Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. My paraphrase. He's always alive, always active to make intercession for his people, claiming you as his own. Waiting, but not passively, in other words waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he is our great, sufficient Savior, high priest, always living to make intercession for us. But he is waiting, and we're waiting for this return. Hebrews also references Psalm chapter 2 that would give us a good picture of this. Second coming kind of thing. He is going to return. He is going to execute judgment, but he's waiting. He's waiting, but he's not waiting passively. Then it says in verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified, cleansed by his work, single, not perpetual over and over again, single, sufficient, adequate, perfect offering for all time. You get the idea that he's he's using every like kind of word available to have you catch on that it's perfect atonement not lacking not to be repeated perfect atonement then it says in verse 15 oh let's stop there for a second you all look like you need a little bit of a break how could we think about this through analogy there's no perfect comparison But when you have something that you think is exactly what you wanted or you meet someone who you think is exactly the person you wanted to meet or you have an experience that is just top notch, it's exactly what you wanted. You leave fully satisfied from that meal that you paid all that money for. You get the idea. But those are just analogies for what will meet your greatest need ever. And it meets your greatest need ever perfectly, absolutely, positively, completely, sufficiently. That's what's being communicated in Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus is not a 99.9% savior. Jesus didn't do his best, and now it's up to you. Jesus didn't try his best. No, sufficient once for all, sat down, waiting, actively so. That's why we say this is, this is gospel news. This is good news. The Bible portrays him that way. Then in verse... 15, like a good Trinitarian, the author of Hebrews says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, in Jeremiah 31, which came up in Hebrews 8 and 9, known as the new covenant, verse 16 then says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, also in Jeremiah 31, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Does God remember our lawless deeds and our sins? Trick question. God knows everything. God doesn't forget anything. But he's saying it in a great way so that we can understand that he doesn't hold our trespasses against us. As to say, he doesn't remember. And I want you to know, God remembers everything. But because of perfect atonement, it's like he doesn't even remember that it ever happened. Because perfect atonement has been made. He sat down, done, finished. It's wonderful to see what's happening here. This new covenant reality. And I'm going to remind you ever so quickly that even the Old Testament, let's call it the Old Covenant in a certain sense because sometimes it's used that way. Even the Old Covenant talks about a new covenant. So it's built in the system to have it be shadowy. It's never meant to be the substance. It's never meant to be the true form. That's why Jeremiah 31, which is in the Old Covenant... Anticipates the new covenant. Am I going too fast for you? <laughs> no, but sometimes we don't realize this kind of stuff and how great it is. We're we're not coming up with some weird New Testament Plan B. It was always there. There was always meant to be, as I like to say, an expiration date on the old covenant system. Then it says. Commentary, verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, where there's forgiveness of our lawless deeds, there's no longer any offering for sin. So I don't look to have my sins atoned for. I'm not looking, I'm not searching, I'm not seeking forgiveness. I'm not looking to functional saviors as we might call them. My sins have already been forgiven to the point where the Bible says God doesn't even remember. Hmm. Okay. I hope you're enjoying this. I'm enjoying this. Now we shift gears to the second. So I know I've been exhorting you to persevere already. I couldn't help myself. But the whole opening section is just designed for you to say, hallelujah, what a savior. It's all just designed for you to say all of these imitation saviors, all of these shadowy deliverers, they don't deliver. They were never meant to deliver. They were always meant to, even the best of them, anticipate one who would come. You know, we could even think. Well, we we better move on. (laughs) Okay. So now it's going to be warm and pastoral, or firm and admonishing. Like you would be out of your ever-loving mind to look somewhere else to deal with your sin problem. And if you're looking to Christ, don't look somewhere else. That doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Some are at a crossroads. Some are not. Verses 19 to 25. It's one long sentence, verses 19 to 25. Not in the English translation that I'm using today, but it's one long sentence. Uh, grammarians would have us to know. Bible scholars would have us to know. Which is probably meant to emphasize passion. Maybe um, firmness. Uh, enthusiasm. Urgency. This is super important. You've got to know this. It's intense. Verse 19 says, therefore, therefore, in light of all that you've heard about Jesus, therefore, brothers, speaking affectionately, since we, he's including himself, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... That is to go directly to God with boldness, without fear, without cowering, by the new and living, could be life-giving, resurrected, if you will, the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. Curtain used to keep people out of the holy place. Now it's torn down because of the finished work of Jesus. That is through His flesh, right? The tearing of His flesh because He gives Himself up for us to make atonement for sins on the cross, Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, over the dwelling of God, let us, how about verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice this, this true heart. I think the idea is you, you are, you are, you are truly trusting in Jesus. Not waveringly so, not half in, half out. You, as a Christian, you're trusting in Christ and you're all in. You're not saying, well, Jesus, you know, I'm glad I've got him and I'm glad I have all these other priests. No, if he, if he brought cleansing so that God doesn't remember your sins anymore, you know what? He has all of your heart, all of your trust. I think that's the idea here. He even uses the sprinkling kind of verbiage from Exodus chapter 24. But here this cleansing comes uh, from Christ. He's using the old covenant imagery, but bringing it into the new. Reminds me of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Boy, if you're trusting in Jesus... You're not afraid. You're not cowering. You are an heir. You are a son and a daughter. And so you just go to him and it's wonderful because you're trusting in Jesus. Why would you want to go somewhere else? It doesn't make sense. Why would you want to have a, a, a lack of sincere trust? Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Resurrection hope, no doubt, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Doesn't make sense to not give him all of your trust because he's faithful. Then it says in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's kind of interesting that that so much of this has been personal to you as an individual believer, Keep looking to Christ. Don't be distracted. Don't be allured by pseudo-saviors. Even if it's pressure, even though it's hard, even though there might be pain involved, if you keep looking to Christ. And so it's been, look to Him, look to Him, look to Him, sufficient Savior. And not only that, now it's the one another kind of thing. You know what? You're going to find help by helping others. And others are going to be able to help you. Part of this persevering thing that we do is not done in isolation, though we certainly are individuals. It's also a corporate kind of thing, which I think is pretty fascinating. Stir up. It says stir up. Oftentimes that that uh, statement in those two English words is used negatively for anger or disagreement. But here it's positive. The idea is it's an intense emotional kind of thing. So we want to intensely be stirring one another up. Not in a negative sense here, I don't think. But, but passionately so. Seriously so. Not passively so. Stir. Up one another to love and good works. Love for God, love for neighbor, doing good things for others. We are fired up about love. That's part of the perseverance process, if you will. 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It isn't one another, see? And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we're waiting for Christ to return, we're anticipating his return to make all things right. You know what we're up to? We're up to focusing on Christ. We can have boldness to go to God. He's the sufficient Savior. There's that for sure, but there's also this one and another kind of thing that we should be passionate about. That we need each other. That it's helpful in our persevering, if you will, to be engaged with other people. This makes a lot of sense. I had forgotten this until I was doing a little bit of studying once again. and He says, until you see the day, as you see the day drawing near. But earlier in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Scholars would have us to know that meet together is used elsewhere in the Bible for... When we're all meeting together on the last day as the bride of Christ. It's used as as a technical kind of label for the ultimate meeting together. The ultimate gathering, right? When we're called to our bridegroom and marriage supper of the Lamb. The ultimate church service, if you will. The ultimate gathering. And I think he's probably on uh, scholars are on to something. For example, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together, there it is, to him we ask you brothers. So I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I never really thought about this before. As we gather, we don't neglect the gathering together as some do. It's looking forward to this ultimate gathering. This, this, is, this is a practice run. <laughs> or, or maybe that's not a good enough way to say it. This is a foretaste, right? A foretaste of the ultimate gathering all different kinds of people, all different ages, all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of sin that needed to be forgiven. And what should we be doing as we wait for the ultimate gathering? We should be gathering. We should be gathering. It's this, do you want to use technical theological language? You don't need to know this to go to heaven, okay? Right? But it's this, it's this eschatological, uh, preview, if you will. Foretaste. End times foretaste. Church gathered. He wants us to be doing that. It's part of persevering. It's part of being able to keep your eyes focused on Christ. I think we probably have too low a view of church. That does remind me of Hebrews chapter 2. I don't know if you recall or not, but in Hebrews chapter 2, we were there a couple of weeks ago. But it does talk about Jesus being in the midst of the assembly, in the midst of the congregation, singing about, I'm paraphrasing, the greatness of God and his promises. Well, it would make sense then for us to gather corporately until that last day of gathering because the Lord Jesus Christ uniquely through the power of his spirit attends our worship. And that is to be a sustaining grace in our lives. I don't want to see a show of hands, but I want to say, how many of you like church? (laughs) Sometimes I don't like church. Sometimes church, especially because I'm a pastor, um, is my biggest source of heartache and heartbreak. You invest in someone's life, and then they pretend as if you never did anything nice for them, right? And that's not just true for pastors. If you've been a Christian very long, you know what I'm talking about. It's just like heartbreak, heartbreak, heartbreak. God saved me from your people, as the bumper sticker says. (laughs) but I love church. I love the corporate gathering. I'm so thankful that it's built in as part of the fiber of my life because of the effect on my life that I see and feel and sense. But I also know there's an effect upon my life that I don't see and I don't feel and I don't sense, but by divine design, it is helping me to persevere as a Christian. I'm so thankful. I love church. I love it. I love it more because of even understanding passages like this. I need it in my life as I need you in my life, as we need each other in our lives, even to stir one another up with passion to love and good deeds. It's one of the curbs to apostasy of no longer trusting in Christ. I took a class on the book of Hebrews years ago by Don Carson. And he said this about this next section. It's the most blistering part of the letter. So it does get severe here. Because some are perilously close of no longer looking to Christ. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately... And I would encourage you to keep that in context. Sinning deliberately as in not just miscellaneous sins, but as in no longer looking to Christ and only to Christ as the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice. Ultimate sin. And if we continue down that kind of path to no longer looking to Christ as the sufficient high priest and sacrifice and king, for if we go on sinning deliberately, I think like that, Looking to other priests, looking to other ways to have atonement. Then it says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the truth about Christ in the gospel, there is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no plan B. To no longer look to Christ is to have no sacrifice for your sins. It is to leave you in a place of greatest peril. Don't do it. It is ridiculous, insane, sinful, and ludicrous. There's no hope. Verse 27 says, But a fearful expectation of judgment, that's what you have, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's all you're going to have if you're depending upon any kind of shadowy priestcraft system or something else. Verse 28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what's he doing there in verse 28? If you just understand the, the logic of the law and how it works, if you break the law, it leads to bad things happening. That's pretty straightforward. If you break the law, bad things happen. Okay, based upon that logic, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot, what a terrible image, the son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. You all understand if you break the law, there are consequences. If you get caught, and you're going to get caught, as far as God is concerned. Well, what do you think is worse? What's worse is for there to be a way, the way. And for you to say, well, I used to trust in Him, but I don't anymore. And you think it's going to be okay for you? It's not. Verse 30 says, For we know Him who said... Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's super severe for those of you who need it to be severe. Not all of you do. Then in verse 31, it says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of statues and idols that we've made with chisels and hammers and stone. I'm not afraid of those. You'd be dumb to be afraid of those. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The different God. And you know how you're going to fall into the hands of the living God? If you don't have the right kind of priest and you don't have the right kind of priest unless you have the priest who had a body designed for him and who came to do the will of the one who sent him. Now, more positively, verse 32, but recall, right? Let me remind you. I would want to say this to everybody, but I would want to say it to, to, just for right now for a moment, I want to say it to children who've experienced so many graces in the life of the church, having a Christian parent or Christian parents. This is applicable to all of us, but think about how many benefits you've received. Learning about God, learning about His grace, learning about His mercy, hearing the gospel, having other people love you even when you're not lovely, Christian love, Christian experience. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings you you were you showed showed like you were willing to persevere 33 sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated you understood what was right you understood what was wrong you understood that it's good to trust in Jesus even if certain individuals don't like you anymore 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I mean, that's, that's how Christians are, right? You're like, I'm going to do the right thing even if it's hard because I've got a lasting possession in Christ. And so what he's doing is he's saying to the people who are thinking about walking away, he's saying, wait a second. At some time in your life, even you yourself did the hard thing. Why are you going to stop doing the hard thing now? What changed? Jesus? No. No. 35 says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. It's confidence in Jesus as the perfect sacrifice, which has a great reward the eternal life reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, powerful reminder of the son who did the will of God. And now you're doing the will of God by trusting in him who did the will of God. You may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one. Will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. It's it's going to be over. It's going to be over soon enough. Keep looking to Jesus, the one who is the ultimate one spoken of as the righteous one, the Messiah. Isaiah 26, Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 3. It will end one day. The short-term pain is just that, short-term pain. Keep looking to Jesus. Verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have, the whole thing's been about this, Faith, that is faith in Christ as the perfect high priest, who have faith and preserve their souls. How do you preserve your soul? Not by what you do, but by the one you have faith in. And the call to perseverance is keep having faith in him. Keep trusting in him. Maybe we could end it by saying this. Everyone has a priest. Of sorts, whether we are religious or not. Some people are religious and they have a priest that they'll go see. But even if you're not that kind of person, you're trusting in something. For happiness and for ultimate happiness. A priest is a mediator. A priest is the one who represents you. And so though you're a sinner, you're going to be able to be represented by God based upon what that priest does for you. So in a sense, we all have priests. We all have coping mechanisms to somehow deal with eternity. The book of Hebrews would want you to know that there's ultimately only one true priest. And even all of the old covenant legitimate priests were never meant to deliver. Only in shadow, only in anticipation, will Jesus Christ deliver you from your problems? And your biggest problem and my biggest problem is God because God is righteous and God is a judge. And so what we want to do is look to Jesus who takes God's wrath so that we don't have to take it. He makes atonement for sins, perfect atonement. And if he makes perfect atonement, it only makes sense that you keep trusting in him no matter what happens, no matter what happens. I say, hallelujah, what a savior. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples, when they're under the gun and under the pressure and people are leaving because Jesus said hard things in John chapter six, he said, do you guys want to go too? What a good little test. And the response was what? Lots of you know. Where else should we go? (laughs) If there's another option, it might be nice. Where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Huh, that's a that's a good example of persevering faith. We're going to keep trusting in you because you're the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by you. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for a great Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we're not worthy of having him be our high priest, but we're thankful that he loved sinners like us. And not only did he love us, he gave himself up for us so that we would know what it means to have you not hold our sins against us and to even speak in terms of forgetting all about it. We're thankful for this. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus And as we do so, help us to encourage one another to do the very same thing as we await that ultimate gathering. When we see that indeed everything was worth it, even the hard things. As we now eat and drink in remembrance of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please use this time supernaturally by the power of the spirit to strengthen us spiritually. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.